welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So it seems important to talk about reconciliation. At least it seemed that way to me as I was getting ready for this um, evening, because there's a lot of conflict out there. And conflict is natural. It's not even that it's a bad thing. Um, You know, I remember working one day a week in a preschool and a lot of what the work in the preschool was, there are all kinds of great things of creativity of children, but some part of it was also reconciliation because the kids would get in conflict. It's my toy. You had it too long. Now it's my turn. You know, you got a bigger cookie than I did. Um, So it starts early and it's because we have different needs and ideas and visions, you know, and then when they would really get upset and hit each other with blocks or bite one another, whatever, then you get down on your knees or I would, and you'd look at them, you'd say, you know, how are you feeling angry, frustrated, what's going on for you, you know, what hurts or what's upset you. And then you'd say, you can use your words, you know, use your words. I I think maybe we should go to the capital of the U.S. and some of the other great political centers in the world with big signs that say, use your words, (laughs) rather than all the other ways that people are trying to solve conflict. But it's there. And it's even there in spiritual communities, um, as you might well know, because conflict really starts in the heart with our attachments and our needs and our desires and um, so forth. And this is particularly a divided time where there's different beliefs and views about the pandemic or climate change or racial and social justice or, you know, how we go forward, certainly in the U.S. as a country, but also in other parts of the world. And we need to kind of pause for a moment and reflect with all these conflicts that are here with us, that surround us, really. What is it that matters? This is from Robert Kennedy, not long before he was assassinated. He was talking in 1968 about the state of the nation. And when our prosperity was measured by the number of telephones and televisions and household gross national product, he said this, our gross national product does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It allows neither for the justice in our courts nor for the justice of our dealings with each other. The gross national product measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning neither our compassion nor our devotion to country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And you hear that, I hear that, and think, what is it that really does matter to us? This vision is needed more than ever in the midst of our difficulties. Some years ago, I was on a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh at the Green Gold Zen Center. A small group of us who had been teachers or colleagues were with him. And he was giving some teaching about smiling as he did that kind of half smile of the Buddha that he puts on and talking about joy and so forth. And I sat near him and I listened. And as I did, I got very sad. I felt a kind of grief in my heart and I was kind of confused because he was talking about being 
joyful and happy. And yet here I felt this great wave of grief. So we had lunch together, Thich Nhat Hanh and a few of us. And I asked him in my confusion, I said, Ty, I said, when you talked about joy, I felt this deep sorrow. And what I want to know is, is it mine or is it yours? Am I picking up from you? And he paused and he looked, his eyes got kind of moist and he said, oh, it's mine. He said, I've seen so much sorrow and suffering. That's why I must teach joy. And if you remember when he first came to the U.S., he met Martin Luther King back in the days in the 1960s and wrote this book, Lotus in a Sea of Fire. He was one of the young Vietnamese leaders um, trying to bring peace in a divided country. He started the school um, of youth uh, for social services, clinics and rebuilding schools and things that have been bombed. But when I heard the story, I also heard that many of the young people who came to work with him were killed because both sides, the North and the South, considered people who were making peace traitors. And I began to think, what would it be like to bring young people together and know that some of them were going to die? And then I see Thich Nhat Hanh walking with holding the hands of children, which he always did in his walking meditation, the innocence of a new generation that trusts. He said, no matter what has happened, we need to water seeds of peace and joy. And this was the same for the Buddha back many, many years before there was a war that was supposed to start that was building up between the Kalyas and the Sakyas over water in a dry season. And who would get the water from this river that divided their countries, not unlike these days. And the Buddha went to the kings who were about to make the battle and asked them some questions. He asked, if I have a jar of water, is it precious? And they said, yes. He said, if I have a jar of water and it's blood, is it precious? And they said, oh, all the more so. Then why, he said, would you fight over a jar of water which we can find when blood is so precious? And in his own way, he was able to lead them to stop their movement toward battle and war. So where are you in conflict in your life? What conflicts do you have? How do you navigate them? I mean, this is a human dilemma, how to solve this for thousands of generations, because our brain is also wired with its negativity bias to look for things that are threatening. But yet some other part of us knows that there's another way. An organization started in the 1970s was called A Better Game Than War. It honored our competition and ambition and, and desire to, you know, compete with one another in all kinds of ways. And let's do this differently. Let's find another way. And for all the messiness and difficulty of politics, you could say that politics is ritualized warfare, that the Democrats and Republicans and so forth, they're not getting soldiers, well, not very much anyway, a little bit recently, but not in general getting their tanks and guns and artillery and all of those things to go take over the Capitol. It's done in a ritualized way. Thank you. So part of what's needed is a kind of reconciliation. We have at Spirit Rock, the Ethics and Reconciliation Council that says conflicts will inevitably arise within the Spirit Rock community. The health of our community is not measured by the presence or absence of conflict as much as by our willingness to find effective, responsible, and compassionate means of resolving our interpersonal tensions to attend to and learn from conflict. 
in our daily lives without this intention based on based on our views will be lost but buddhist conflict resolution is not based on good or bad blame or guilt winning and losing it is based on addressing the suffering of all concerned and seeking reconciliation over estrangement and forgiveness over resentment. So our ear council, our ethics and reconciliation process, which we have, actually comes from a long history. For many, many years ago, when you were much younger and in an earlier incarnation, many of you were around the Buddha, very possibly, you don't know, but it's possible, you know, everything's so mysterious. And in one of those years, the Buddha spent a rains retreat, three months during the rainy season where the monks and nuns would pause and live in one place in the forest and not wander to do deep meditation and also not to cause harm for the beings in the rainy season when it's hard to move around. And he was at the Gosira Monastery in a beautiful forest near other groups of monks and nuns. And in this monastery, there arose conflict. The Buddha was staying at the edge of the Gosira Monastery in a forest more or less nearby, but not in the middle of the community. And he heard a little bit about the conflict between the master of decorum and discipline, the Vinaya master, and the master of recitation who would recite the Buddhist teachings so they would never be forgotten. And they each accused the other of not following the rules and not doing things right and all the kinds of accusations that we all know and make against one another at certain times when we feel entitled or right or caught up. And many took sides and the conflict increased, although some refused to take sides. And over the weeks it grew and the lay supporters become, became upset. And finally, they beseeched the monks in that monastery to call the Buddha from the forest nearby. And so Nagita, the Buddha's attendant, who himself couldn't endure the situation, went and called the Buddha, who put on his outer robe and went to the meeting hall and they rang the bell for everyone to gather. And the Buddha said, monks, please cease arguing. It is creating division. Return to your practice of loving kindness. If we truly follow our practice, we will not become victims of pride and anger. But his words fell on deaf ears. It got very quiet. And then one of the monks involved stood up and said, Master, please don't involve yourself in this matter. Return and dwell peacefully in your meditation. This matter does not concern you. We are adults and capable of resolving this on our own. Dead silence followed these words. The Buddha stood up and left the hall. He went down into Kosambi for his alms food. And then he headed for the river, not telling anyone, even Ananda, his attendant and went to a far forest where he found a few monks living together in harmony like milk and water and joined them for a time and then ended living all by himself for three months among the elephants and the other beings of the forest. When he was asked by the three monks that he found living together nearby, why he was doing this, the Buddha remarked, sometimes it's more pleasant to live alone than with other people. Now, of course, I'm sure you have all had those thoughts yourself at certain times. Sometimes it's actually best to step out. He told no one, he left. And then after three months, he returned. And he asked as he came closer to the Gosira Monastery, what's happening? And he heard the story that the conflict got worse and that the lay disciples 
were upset with the monks and said, you continue to argue, you drove the Buddha away. And eventually they said, unless you get over your pride and your arguments, we will no longer offer you food. So they quieted down and they agreed to pause and meet together. You know, taking away the food made a difference as you can imagine. And when the Buddha returned, he met with the wisest of those monks who were still there, who had not been involved in the conflict. And they said, what should we do now? How do we reconcile them? And he said, bring the true groups close together, but still keep them separate. And then he began to outline a seven step process of reconciliation. The first step was called face-to-face speaking, where those who'd been involved in the conflict were invited to sit surrounded by others in the community and by the elders and to tell the truth as best as they could of what happened. And the face-to-face in front of all was to avoid, said the Buddha, private conversations. Because those of you who watch the social dilemma and know the echo chambers of the internet and online world know that our private conversations and separating ourselves in groups can actually highlight and increase the hysteria and the level of fear and all of the emotions. And so the first step is come face to face. Don't talk privately outside. As the saying goes, it's hard to hate up close. And once there was this gathering face to face, then there was this, the, the speaking of truth. And the speaking of truth, said the Buddha, is so important when he was asked at another time, Why do you ordain both the untouchables and the high caste together? Don't you know that our tradition for a thousand years has placed people in different orders? And he said, that is simply tradition. And it is not true. Every human being who is born has inherent dignity and value, none higher or lower. He said, the truth is the truth, whether anyone believes it or not. Though a million people may believe a lie, it is still a lie. You must have the courage to live according to the truth. So there's the telling of truth face to face with one another. Then the second step is called deep listening. Remembering with clarity what happened. And then be willing, being willing to listen to the other side. And this allows us to understand in a new way. I remember when there was some considerable conflict at our center on the East Coast. And the conflict arose between the teachers who were the most conservative and the teachers who were the most progressive, the wild-eyed radicals and the the stick-in-the-mud, you know, conservative ones who wanted to keep things the way they were. And there there was a lot of unhappiness and words spoken behind people's back and fear and conflict and who should we follow. We had the benefit of Robert Hall, one of the Spirit Rock teachers, as a psychiatrist, come and help with our meeting. And at one point, he said, let's have the two people who most represent these poles do something that we can learn from. So he first asked the person who was the most radical, a follower of Krishnamurti at certain points who said, we don't need tradition. We don't need to follow the old ways. We need to find truth exactly where we are and throw out a lot of the old things and just keep it true and simple. Um, Said, would you please leave the room? 
And the 20 of us sat there without that person there. And Robert said, how is it without this firebrand wanting to change everything and make it all new and throw away the old? And people said, myself, well, there's a certain sigh of relief. Thank you. We're not getting that pressure. Robert said, well, is there anything else? What would you miss about them? And I spoke up and I said, well, if they weren't here, I would have to become more of a revolutionary. But because they carry that spirit, I can relax a little and I don't have to be so involved in making the changes. And then they were brought back into the room. Others spoke as I did, seeing their value. And the most conservative person who was afraid that the teachings of the Buddha would be lost or changed or sullied or that the depth wouldn't be maintained if we changed it in the many ways that was meaningful or different was asked to leave. And you have to understand that each of these teachers was very attached to their view and quite judgmental of the other and of the rest of us. And then Robert said, how is it without this person? Oh, we relaxed. He's pretty judgmental of a lot of us not doing the traditional way completely. If he weren't here, we'd be much more at ease. And then Robert said, well, what would you miss from him? And others of us spoke up as I might. Oh, my gosh. He really hews to the tradition. He recites the sutras. He tells us the original teachings and stories. If he wasn't here, I would have to do more of that. But because he's in the community, I can teach the way that I choose to. He was brought back in the room and we looked at each other and learned that between us, there was a greater wisdom and a greater, greater whole. That in fact, the mandala of who we were together with conservatives and liberals carried a kind of intelligence and wisdom we needed from one another. So remembering with clarity, speaking with truth, speaking as an act of truth, and deep listening so we hear one another in a new way. Curiosity in your family. What are you grateful for? What would you do if you had no fear? What conflicts have you solved in your life? How did you do it? How are you managing to cope with all these changes? These are the kind of questions you can ask someone, even someone you feel is very different than yourself. And they will answer in a, in a way that lets you connect outside of that conflict, deeper than that conflict. Then the third step, face-to-face, Deep listening is non-stubbornness. We get so attached to our views. Here's the Buddha saying, how could one have conflict with the wise ones who do not grasp at any views? For one is free from views. There are no ties and no suffering. But those who grasp after views and opinions, they wander about the world annoying other people. I like to think of this as kind of a little bit of humor from the Buddha as well. They wander about the world annoying people. But non-stubbornness is the next step, the Buddha said. Bring these monks together, deep listening, and then let go of their views. Invite the quality of non-stubbornness for them and for you. And then the next the fourth step is called voluntary confession. How painful it was to reflect. How have I contributed to this conflict? Because in some ways we may have all contributed to the conflicts we look at. And I think of this extraordinary book entitled A Human Being Died That Night by Pumla Kobodo Marikizela who is a South African activist and psychologist and part of the truth and reconciliation process. And she decided to go into the maximum security prison where they had locked up Eugene de Kock, who is known as the 
commander of the death squads during apartheid um, who murdered and tortured many people and ordered others to do it. She said, I need to understand how someone could do this. And she spent a year going into his cell at first terrified, just talking and listening and recording. And on one day he came to say, when she asked where he was, he said, I think that I lost. It's a feeling of deep loss. Well, the first thing that goes is innocence. I mean, there's no more fairy tales in Bambi. That's gone. We killed a lot of people and they killed some of ours. We fought for nothing. We fought each other basically eventually for nothing. We could all have been alive having a beer. And the politicians, if we could put all the politicians in the front lines with their families and grandparents and grandchildren, if they're in the front lines, I don't think we will ever have war again. I think it's educated people, very educated people who sit in parliament and decide about war. So I'm confused. I'm very confused. And I'm just very tired. And she wrote about how a year of dialogue, she who had lost family members and seen so much suffering had come to understand him and in her own way had offered forgiveness. When she heard his voluntary confession of how he too had seen this and wished that he had not done what he did. How do I contribute? And then the next step was decision by consensus. That is to allow the group to be quiet for a time and to reflect and to listen to one another and come to an agreement, yes, this is how we can move forward. Again, a very deep listening. And then the next step is called accepting the verdict. And that is really the willingness to change. You know this in the work of addictions, where nobody can help someone who's addicted as an alcoholic or a drug addict. My name is Jack and I'm a Buddhist. You know, I don't know what will help me with that. But in any case, my name is Jack and I have conflicts. And that's also true. And to accept the verdict is really to say, all right, I have contributed as well. And now the consensus has come that we must move forward and I accept too. And then finally, the last step is called covering mud with straw. And there they were, there's the Buddha and senior monks and this whole group of community that had been in conflict. And in the middle are the especially the two masters who started the conflict, having gone through face-to-face, -face, telling the story, deep listening, non-stubbornness, voluntary confession, how I've contributed, decision by consensus, accepting the verdict. And then covering mud with straw means that you sit and listen to the elders who are there, who will give some teachings as the Buddha did, practice loving kindness to overcome anger. It has the capacity to bring happiness to others without demanding anything in return. Practice compassion to overcome cruelty. Compassion has the capacity to remove the suffering of others without expecting anything in return. Practice sympathetic joy to overcome hatred. Sympathetic joy arises when one rejoices in the happiness of others and wishes others well. Practice non-attachment to overcome prejudice. Non-attachment is the way of looking at things with open and equal mind and equanimity. This is because that is. That is because this is. Myself and others are not separate. separate. Do not reject one thing only to chase after another. And when he spoke about resting in loving kindness 
and compassion with a deep understanding the community changed. And I remember sitting with Thich Nhat Hanh after he had his major stroke. It was the last day and we did an early morning meditation. He was here in San Francisco brought by Mark Benioff of Salesforce with a group of monks and nuns to have medical care for six months in San Francisco. And though he couldn't speak, his stroke had taken away his language. He sat in his wheelchair and we all sat together. And then at the end, the bell rang and he was about to board a plane later that day and return to Plum Village in France. And he looked around the room at the 20 of us sitting with him. And it's as if he looked with two different eyes. One eye acknowledged each person who was there. He nodded to them without words, to myself, to others. We could feel our connection over the years in that moment, absolutely present and deep. And the other eye was looking to eternity. You could feel a vastness of his presence, a sense of timelessness, the fact that, yes, he knew his body was toward the end of his life. At that time, he was 86 or 87. Now he's 90. Maybe he was 88. He could see all of that with one eye. And with the other, he could be totally present and loving. And this is the vision of an elder covering mud with straw, loving each person as they are, where they are, and seeing the vastness of things as well. So you listen to this story of the Buddha and the monks in conflict. You know how guys are, it happens. Reflect for a moment, where are you in the story? If you were to find yourself in the story, are you like the Buddha in that moment where no one will listen to you? Or are you more caught like the stubborn monks? Or maybe you're the disgusted lay people who don't want to pay taxes anymore and don't want to support these people in conflict and feed them. Maybe you're the one who didn't take sides. Are you one who listens deeply? Are you willing to cover mud with straw? We all have these in our lives. I grew up in a very painful and violent family because my father was a tyrant and a wife beater and batterer and a, you know, at times brutal with his children, not always, but completely unpredictable and terrible. And I tried to be the peacemaker in the family. Now you can see I do it for a living. And at times it was a little bit helpful, but mostly not. I just listened, but they didn't listen to me. And then I remember my twin brother who was a lot bigger. I was this skinny kid and he played football and we were both 14. I was still pretty skinny and he would sort of bulked up. And my father was getting violent with my mother and hit her. And my twin brother strode over and stood up, kind of showed his young man muscles and raised his hand and said, I'm gonna beat you to my father. You know, and you could see the rage in my twin brother. And my father backed off because my brother really would have just pounced on him. And after that time, standing up to the bully, my father did not lay a hand on my mother. He could still be verbally abusive, but he stopped beating her and harming her. So it also says sometimes maybe you need to stand up to the bully. Maybe so. But more than anything, it talks about how the fact is that there is grief and pain in every one of our lives.
and that we carry a legacy, whether in our families, we might have had a beautiful, peaceful family. But if we talk about our human family, then we're all in this together. And reconciliation is hard. It's hard in our families. I think of the woman who came to see me that I work with because she was in this terrible divorce where her ex-husband had hired the kind of most vicious lawyer to try to take keep all the money and take the children from her and made up stories of her unfaithfulness and her being crazy and so forth. I said to her, get yourself a really good lawyer, which she did. The the father was trying to turn her children against her as happens in these terrible divorces. And she came in one day to see me and she said, with all these terrible things happening, I realized that in the midst of them all, I will not turn my children against their father, no matter what he does. I will not bequeath a legacy of bitterness to my children. And I felt like she was one of those wise elders at the end of the reconciliation process. A teacher in one of the groups online that we now know so many meditation groups talked about her online Dharma group and how she imagined because she was relatively liberal and she looked out at the demographic of who comes to meditation that there wouldn't be Trump supporters in the group. But of course she was wrong because the gates to the Dharma open and welcome everyone, liberals and conservatives and libertarians and, you know, they welcome all beings. And you could hear that in the story of Robert Paul and our meeting, how we actually need to listen to each other. We each carry something important. And during the first meetings of this group, she unfortunately, the teacher said something unsupportive of Donald Trump. And one of the group members who was already kind of not sure whether he wanted to be in the group and had not showed up a couple of times said, let me request that we don't discuss politics here because I'm a supporter of Donald Trump and I need this to be a safe space. So this woman as the teacher in the group all immediately agreed. And by not talking politics, we kept this man safe. And in the process, we gotten to understand his suffering and see why he thinks the way he does. It's been so valuable. If we stick together, keeping on the path of awareness, we can see each other more clearly each in our own time. Maybe we're avoiding something by not discussing thorny issues, but it feels right to do in this moment. And so on this day in our group, we have a Trump supporter who is a war veteran, a gun owner, and a warm and wonderful and wounded person. And we are continuing on as a Sangha. We've held him and each other with gentleness and acceptance and he in turn has become closer to each of us, much more than he ever intended. He was very skeptical of us and felt very much an outsider for good reason. But now the trust is there among us. You can hear this and hear the, the value and the benefit in reconciliation. We need to do this in our families, in our work with one another. And we need to do this, it seems, nationally. I've been talking to a friend who is various friends, one of whom is a federal judge, others, about the fact that we need a truth and reconciliation process in the USA. It doesn't fix things, but it's a start. If you could go for example, to Montgomery, Alabama, and see the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, you know, and see the names of the thousands of victims of lynching and 
you know, terror over the years. People killed by mobs. But in fact, the model of truth and reconciliation of South Africa has now been adopted in 35 countries. And we're starting to do it locally. There was a group that was done in Greensboro, South Carolina. Reverend Nelson Johnson was a co-founder of the Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation. And he said, let me say, first of all, we were organizers then, active organizers in the textile industry and in communities throughout North Carolina. We chose to have a march through the, through the historic black community. Well, nine carloads of Klan Nazis drove into the march with a cache of weapons and they fired on the group. Five people were killed. I was wounded. And I knew then that this couldn't happen without police collusion. We fought it from the very beginning. Two juries did not convict the Klan or find anyone guilty of anything. So at the 20th anniversary of this tragedy, we mulled over what to do and we resolved to build a truth process over 40 years of persistent work. And they got people to come in who remembered and tell the story and the entire community heard what had really happened and all the things that were buried. And it made the community come together and say, yes, we live this way and we will not live this way in the future. And there's been a truth and reconciliation process as well um, in Maine. And part of this process was started by Denise Altvater, who is a Wakanabe native, an indigenous person, and the founder of the Maine State Child Truth and Reconciliation Process. Because the state of Maine removed more children from native families than any other state by percentage, a third of children were taken from their parents. She wrote, she said, the state came with a station wagon and took myself and my five sisters out of our home. They put all our belongings in garbage bags. My mother was away shopping, she wasn't home, and we did not see her again for four years. They forbid us to speak our language. They forget us to talk of our tradition. So when they drove us away from the reservation, they drove me away from the only thing I'd known my whole life, and for four years, the foster parents tortured us and the state left us there. These are terrible stories, but without telling the truth of the native genocide, of the history of slavery, of the way and lynchings, of the way that we've treated one another, we can't move forward because we're still fighting the civil war, you know, as if slavery wasn't bad and it didn't happen and as if we can pass over the native genocide. But it's not the end of the story. As the Buddha says, look how he beat me, abused me, threw me down, robbed me. Continue to live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he beat me, abused me, threw me down, robbed me. Abandon these thoughts and live in love. In this world, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. We can do something different. We can learn from one another. We may, if we are fortunate, be able to create a national process of reconciliation, to listen to one another. As Longfellow said, if we could read the secret history of our enemy, we would see sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we could really listen and hear the pain and fear that's carried by each one, if we could suspend our prejudice and in some way be willing to follow this reconciliation process, cover mud with straw, to be not so stubborn. I read, I think last time, or the time before, 
this story from my daughter Caroline's organization, Oasis, which provides service, legal services and support for LGBT people from around the world whose lives are in danger. And she said, one of our clients and volunteers and staff told me this story. We had a young law student who was here in Berkeley, but came from Saudi Arabia. We'll call her Miriam. And she volunteered to help us with asylum and she volunteered to help Elena, a transgender woman from El Salvador to go to her asylum interview, despite Miriam's own conflicted views around transgender and sexual orientation and all the Muslim things she'd heard and gender identity, the kind of prejudice that she had heard in her community. She was professional, courteous, and respectful as she prepared the client for the hearing, but she didn't engage in small talk during the long ride over to what would be one of the most difficult days in Elena's life. Miriam and Elena sat silently in the sterile waiting room. The asylum officer was running late. One hour, then two hours went by. Finally, Elena pulled out her phone and showed Miriam a photo of her Pomeranian. Miriam's face lit up. She had a Pomeranian too, named Ali. They traded photos and stories, soon moving on to their love of jewel-studded high heels and Louis Vuitton purses. Miriam taught Elena about the abaya she was wearing. By the time the officer was ready, four hours later, Elena's fear had receded, and Miriam was whispering reassuring cheers as they walked into the room. Standing outside the subway station at the end of the day, they held hands and they each thanked one another. Elena won asylum, escaping almost certain death if she returned to El Salvador. And Miriam, in the next year, returned to her life in Saudi Arabia. They would likely never meet again. But our hearts cannot help but be moved as we see how each had a deep impact in one another's lives. In these times of the dark, we must remember that when we're able to sit down and listen to one another, to see the world through another's eyes and believe in our common humanity, there is hope. This isn't easy stuff. Meher Baba said, true love is not for the faint hearted. And the Bhagavad Gita says, if you want to see the brave, look to those who can forgive. If you want to see the heroic, look to those who can return love for hatred. On another night, perhaps I'll talk about forgiveness and how it works. And it doesn't mean you condone things that cause suffering. Your first step is to do whatever you can to prevent yourself or others from suffering, from the suffering and pain continuing, but then there's a deep process of forgiveness that's possible. And we all know this because we've all needed forgiveness as well. Nelson Mandela, do not judge me by my successes. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. O nobly born, begin the Buddhist text. Remember who you really are. Remember that you have within you the great heart of wisdom and understanding, the great heart of compassion, that this is possible for you. And as it says in the Majjhima Nikaya, the words of the Buddha, others will be cruel, I will be kind, thus I will incline the heart. Others will be greedy and hoard. I will be generous, thus I will incline the heart. Others will speak falsehoods. I will speak truth, thus I will incline the heart. Others will be envious. I will be appreciative, thus I will incline the heart. 
Others will be fraudulent. I will be honest. Thus, I will incline the heart. Others will be arrogant. I will be open-minded. Thus, I will incline the heart. Others will be harsh. I will establish compassion. Thus, I will incline the heart. Others may lack wisdom. I will see what is wise and live with it. Thus, I will incline my heart. You carry within you the seeds of awakening, your own Buddha nature. What seeds will you water? You carry the seeds that the world needs more than anything. Your ability to stop, to pause and listen deeply, to not cling to views, but to hear the hearts of others, their pain and their conflict and their difficulty, to live with non-stubbornness, to realize that we are a family, that we're in it together, the family of humans, the family of beings on this earth. You are of the vastness. Consciousness and loving awareness is your true nature, born into this body. It is who you really are. And even in times of conflict, which will come again and again and are natural, remember your own dignity and nobility. Remember the capacity of your heart to be brave, as the Bhagavad Gita says, to be heroic in the most heartful way, to see with the eyes of love and compassion and tenderness, to stand up to protect those who need to be protected, including yourself, but to do so as Dr. Martin Luther King said, with only the weapons of love, with only the weapons of the heart itself. You meditate, you listen, you hear these teachings. Some of them may resonate for you, I hope. But more than anything, you carry the lamp and you carry beauty into the world. And I honor you for it. Thank you.